Well, we've come to the end. We were away, actually, but we've come to the end of um, a period, haven't we, of celebration, jubilee celebration. Some of you might have loved it. Some of you might have really been completely nonplussed. Others of you might have really not enjoyed it at all. But it's fascinating, this, this recognition. We, I, I was glad that we're away. That's a giveaway. I was glad that we were not in this country, but it was, you know, it's good to celebrate. And without a doubt, it is a blessing to have lived under a good queen. That is undoubtedly true. And it's been utterly remarkable, uh, the story of her life as a monarch. But the reality is, although we've celebrated, we all know that we, we see the Queen truly in our particular democratic system. We live in a parliamentary system. The Queen is a figurehead ruler, isn't she? She's not actually the final ruler uh, of our country. We live in a parliamentary system. History tells us that power always ultimately breeds inequality it always breeds oppression it always ultimately leads to strife that's the reality of power in the history of humanity and so it's really appropriate that we reach this point in this particular section of the Bible thousands of years ago which has an incredible message to speak to us today as we look around the geopolitical situation that we see in our world today. History tells us that there is no system that protects us from this tragedy of human nature. Good monarchs have bad children. Republics polarize and corrupt communes ultimately favor the elite. Not a single ruling system in human history is ultimately, ultimately free from this corruption. That is the nature of our human experience. Yet at the same time, don't we desperately strive for something good? That's why we believe, no matter where we are on the, on the political map, it's why we believe so passionately at times what we do believe. We believe it because we believe that what we believe in is going to bring ultimately something good, something better. We desperately strive for it. And we've seen through history, and certainly over the past three 400 years maybe, we've seen the impact of that. We've seen revolution in France, the Bolshevik Revolution, the English Civil War. Why did all of those things happen? Because of corruption and a desperate desire for seeking something better. Many folks around the world today have moved from their original birthplace to somewhere else because they believe in a better system or have been forced to move 
from a worse system to a better system. Because their belief system was out of, out of sorts with their location to the point where perhaps they just couldn't cope with it or perhaps they were fearing death. And so they escape. And in that, what we do see is that the system that we live in or, more importantly, the system that we desire is at the heart of our identity. What we desperately seek, what we desperately want, is absolutely at the heart of our identity. We probably, in this room this afternoon, watching online, connecting up later on, I will guarantee that we will have one extreme of socio-political view right the way through to the other extreme. We'll have that. We'll have so many different perspectives. And yet within that, we are all striving, we believe, for the better. And history tells us that no matter which system finally is imposed or succeeds, it always finally falls apart. That's pretty tragic. It's also a pretty grim way to start this afternoon. So I want to encourage you. We're going to get to a great place. We're going to get to a great place in the story of God's salvation in this world through this text. This chapter actually is it's kind of like a, a taster. I think it's probably one of the most important, I say this every time, don't I? It's probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. In a way it is. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible in pointing us to a particular truth, to a particular idea. And it centers around the narrative between Samuel and God's people, having them having demanded a king. It's the dialogue. It's Samuel's dialogue with the people. Just, just pause for a minute. Thousands of people. And Samuel. It's a, it, this is not just a, a, a conversation in, in the cafe. This is a momentous, historic dialogue between the man who had been leading God's people up to that point, and this massive transition. And so what he says here is critically important in the journey of God's people. We're going to see it under three headings. And we're going to see how it applies to us. We're going to look at it through revolution. We're going to look at it through accountability. And we're going to look at it through grace. So the first, revolution. All men by nature are created alike. And you are enduring unjust oppression. Cast off the yoke of bondage and recover liberty. Somebody once said. Any idea? Any idea where that might be? Past 50 years? Past 75, maybe 100 years? Maybe it was the American Revolution. Maybe it was the... Uh, the emancipation of India, whatever it might be, where was it? It was 13 
81. It was John Ball and the Peasants' Revolt. Isn't that incredible? And yet listening to those words, we get a taste, we get a flavor for exactly the same themes that have, have echoed through history. Unjust freedom, liberty. Bondage, recover your liberty. Yoke, find freedom. What we see in this particular dialogue, Samuel comes to the people and he confronts them and he says, you are creating a revolution. You are creating a revolution. You've started a revolution. You're moving in the direction of a revolution. But, and this is the critical difference that Samuel's conversation, Samuel's dialogue makes to the people. The difference is this. You are revolting against the good. That's what he says. Let's have a look at how that unfolds. First section that we're going to say, see is that he puts together, if you like, his credentials for being able to come to that. He's the spokesperson. He's a leader who is probably... Unlike many, many other leaders down through history, he's one of the few who could say this to them and get the answer back that he received. Now you have, have a king. Now, sorry, let me start again. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom, whom, I, whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? I love that phrase. That is brilliant, isn't it? It's just so fantastically worded. Who have I accepted a bribe, bribe from so that I shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I'll make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. That's Samuel's credentials to be able to stand in front of the people at this moment in time. And he says, look at the rule that you have lived under. Look at the, the person that I have been. That's the kind of person that I have been. There is nothing that has gone on in the way that I have led. Not one moment. It's almost like the, the, the kind of the, that moment in, in, in the vows, in the wedding vows, which has probably mostly been dropped now. You know, if anybody has any due reason why these two persons should not be found, uh, you, know this, you know the line. I've forgotten it. Um, speak now. I can imagine Samuel kind of said that to the people and then paused. He gave them the opportunity to say, you are unrighteous. You have no right to say this. But the reality was that at the end of that statement, all they could say was, you absolutely are right. You've never done that to us. That's the credibility that Samuel came from. 
He came to them and he, re he revealed his heart. He said, this is who I am. I've acted in righteousness. Now, let me confront you with the kind of rebellion that you are transacting by this decision to appoint a king. Now let me remind you, verse 6. Samuel said to the people, What kind of ruler beyond me have you had? You know that I've not been a king, Samuel was saying. I've not been a king in front of you. I've been placed in between your king. What kind of king have you had? It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. Here's the thing. He's saying, right, now here we go. You've made this decision. Now listen. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forgotten the Lord, forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. <laughs> what kind of a king have you had? What kind of a leader have you had? That's what he's saying to the people. What kind of king? What kind of leader? Because I'm not the king. I've been representative of the king. Who has led you? Has he been an impotent king? No. He's been a king who was able to bring you out of Egypt. He's been a king who's been able to take you back, redeem you, rescue you from your own turning away. Do you see that, what he says? He says, the, the, one that, the, the one who has saved you is the one who listened to you when you cried out again, even though you had rejected him. When you turned away. That's the nature of the king that you've got. Samuel captures the heart of the people. And the reality, I think, is that he probably captures our hearts as well. It's almost as though Samuel is stood right in front of us, speaking to us. What kind of king do you have? <laughs> He's a king who has rescued you in the past. He's a king who has done good in spite of your wanderings. He's a king who you have now rejected because of the perversity of this revolution you are revolting against the good. 
That's what Samuel is saying to them. I, I, you know, one day I believe that we will see all of the great heroes of the faith. We will meet them. Meeting Samuel will be an amazing thing. That moment when an old man, weak, confronted the people and was able to say, this is where you are. Be ready. Be ready is what he's saying. So the first we see is accountability. Uh, revolution. The second we see is accountability. Why accountability? Why are they accountable? Why did they actually decide that they wanted a king? That's key to this storyline. Why did they rise up and say, in spite of everything that has happened, give us a king? Why? Verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Why, why are they now accountable? They're accountable for this reason. Because they didn't enact faith in the God who had previously saved them. A God who has previously taken them out of Egypt. A God who has previously restored them in spite of their wanderings. At this moment where they see a threat. They did not enact faith in that God. They say what we desperately need now in the face of this, this king um, Nahash. What we need right now is our own king. It's as, though, it's as though Samuel at this moment turns the light as we read it from the thousands of people stood in front of him listening to him. And he shines it on us. And he says, aren't we like that? Aren't we just the kind of people that are fearful of the temporary things that seem insurmountable around us? that seem impossible to defeat around us, that seem to be the greatest threats that could possibly come upon us in all of human experience. That's our, that's our nature. What I need now is something from this temporary world to rescue me from this thing in this temporary world that seems so overwhelming. That's our nature. It's who we are. We, we look at the things that are terrifying and we say, I need something now, immediate, to, to save me, to placate me, to give me peace, to find me security. The current fear of the current threat always results in us looking for a current solution rather than trusting our past protection that's the nature of our experience that's our accountability and so we get to the point where Samuel says to the people now listen to this let me move on to the next stage 
verse 13 to 15. Here's the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, here's the good news. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. I love that. I'm, I, I don't know how it's actually written in the Hebrew, but it's, I, I'm sure it's been captured in such a way as if to say, yeah, it's great. It's great if you do all those things. It's almost as though Samuel is saying to the people, great if you keep all of those promises. What tells you that you're going to keep all of those promises? What track record have you got that tells you that you're going to keep all those promises? This isn't, uh, this isn't um, a serious kind of encouragement, I don't believe. It's a right in your face. Here's the deal. Keep all of this. He keeps this. It's going to be great. <laughs> but it's not going to be great. Because the reality is that you know that neither you nor he will be able to keep that as you promised. And what you've done is you've swapped, you've exchanged a king who has proven to be good and faithful even when you rebel with a temporary human being who is as likely to fall over as you. This is going to work out well, isn't it? Samuel is kind of saying to the people. This is going to be great. Let me just say, I'm glad I'm old. <laughs> I think that's his idea. I'm glad I'm not long for this world. Because I can see where it's going to go. I'm going to tell you now. But you've chosen. You've made that decision. This is where you are. What about us? This is where we are. Here's the thing. There is this, in this chapter, the, the, this again, this little section, 13 to 15, this is like a turning point as well. Even in the chapter. It's a turning point which says, this is how it's going to be. All of us will make decisions in life that we will have to live with to a greater or lesser extent. We will make decisions. We will decide certain things. Some of them will be good. Some of them will be really disastrous. And we will end up living a life of accountability because of those decisions to a greater or lesser extent. That's where the people end up. Now, now in, the, in the economy of our human experience, when we hear that, we tend to think, well, that's it then, isn't it? I've made a bad decision. That's disaster. It's all over. I'm going to be held accountable for this, and that's it. I'm done. This is what is beautiful, beautiful about the salvation storyline of God is that in the midst of those decisions, there is astounding grace. There is grace. Because this chapter, 
concludes with some of the most breathtaking moments and insights of grace that you could imagine. The first is this. Verse 16, Samuel gives the people 12 months to ponder. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. We don't know, I guess it must have been there, yeah, Northern Hemisphere, it's probably yeah, late summer, something like that. Is it not wheat harvest now? That's the time of year it is. I'll call, call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. The most unexpected thing that you could possibly have at that particular time in that particular region. Thunder and rain. Disaster. Crops wiped out. This is now going to be a tough year. Do you see grace in that? Does that look like grace? In our, with our 21st century ears, that does not sound like grace. But it is astounding grace. And it's grace because of this reason. Because God does not walk away. What does He do? He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it tough for you for a year. So that you'll remember and you'll think and it will always be in front of you. The worst thing, the least grace-filled thing that God could do at this moment in time is wash his hands of them and say, carry on, you lot. You're on your own. But grace breaks in. In the decisions that we make in life and the accountability that we live with and the challenges that we face as a result of, those very challenges are grace. Because we're living with the results and we're pondering the results. We're confronted with the results so that we see them face to face and they are not lost on us. And what can we do? We can look and be reminded that God is holding us in a place where He says, I'm not going to let you go, but you will feel a desperate desire for me. And so thunder and rain fall. They look at it, they see it just erupts. And the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God, for your servants, so that he w we will not die. Do you see that turning point in their language? Pray to the Lord your God, so that we will not die. They're looking to Samuel, and they're saying to Samuel, stand in the middle for us, please. Stand in the gap. Stand between our revol uh, revolution Stand between our iniquity and the righteousness of God. Please stand between us and intercede for us. That's grace. Because God keeps Samuel in that place. And he prays for them. Do not be afraid, verse 20, Samuel says. You've done all this evil, yet you do not turn away. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do no good for you. 
nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. What is our salvation? What is the perseverance of our faith all about? So that we get saved? Well, yes. But if you're thinking about this idea of faith, can I trust this God? What's at stake in my faith in this God? What's at stake is His name and His reputation, not yours. That is the most securing thing that you can imagine for our salvation. Because it's His name that's at stake, not ours. Grace. God will continue to deliver hope for His people. They've put a human king in place. <laughs> and it's going to turn really bad. But here's the thing. The story of God's salvation is absolutely that He will make sure that God is king. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 says this about a tiny baby who's born in a stable, insignificant. The wise men come looking for him. Where is the one who was being born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You see, the thing is that God's purpose to be the king himself of his people will not be thwarted by the temporary attempts of God's people to instill a human king, a temporary human king. God says, I'll do both. I'll step into this world and I will become, as God, your human king. Pilate asks him in Mark chapter 15 and verse 2, as he is about to be nailed to the cross, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. A heathen ruler who has no interest whatsoever in the history of God's salvation creates a moment where he decides that what he's going to do as a result of what Jesus says is nail a sign over the top of Jesus' cross. Here's the king of the Jews. And in that, he creates the most breathtaking, earth-shattering declaration that this is true. The king of the Jews, or in other words, the king of God's people, the true king of God's people, is hanging on this cross. The king. Well, that sounds as if it's a disaster. Except that in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, we read this. 
They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with Him will be His people, His called, His chosen, and His faithful ones. You see, this King's story back in Samuel chapter 12 prepares us and points us to the greatest King's story that the world has ever seen. Where an uncorrupted and uncorruptible King becomes divine ruler for all of eternity over his people. What's our task? Well, the first task is to confront that claim about Jesus. That's what he claims to be. That might be new to you. It might be something that you're hearing for the first time. That's, for me, the amazing storyline of the Bible in the way that the, the kingship of Jesus is finally established against all of, the, all of the attempts of those who oppose God's people and God's people themselves to try to do something different. God wins. But secondly, it's a reminder for us to say we've got to trust the one who's been with us in the past for the future. That's what the people failed to do. That's where their revolt came from. They looked at the immediate problem and they said, we can't beat this, we need a king. And Samuel says, you've, you've, you've got this king who's always been good and always protected you and yet you're deciding that you can't. There was a hymn that we used to sing when I was very little. It used to drive me nuts because I thought the tune was awful. And the words were cheesy. And I look at it now and I think, wow. Some real power in that if we take away the ditzy little tune and think of the breathtaking pattern that it gives us. It says this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. That's actually from James. You like, we can be like a straw tossed in the waves. That's life. Do you feel that sometimes? Do you feel as though life's billows are just like a tempest tossing you from one place to another? Discouraged, thinking all is lost. What is the hymns and this chapter's antidote to that? Count your blessings. Look back. Name them one by one. Pause. It's, it felt so cutesy to me. But actually, it is profoundly powerful to sit down in the middle of a crisis to take a piece of paper and a pen and just reflect and write. These are the good things that God has done for me, been with me, walked alongside me. He's been with me here. He's been with me there. And He's been with His people throughout history. 
Name them one by one and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. His blessing is upon His people. That's the story of this chapter. God's blessing is on His people. There are times it might not feel it. There are times it might not almost feel as though we can experience it. But there are times we need to reflect and say, yes, that's true. 